the talk this morning has got a really heavy title to it. Uh, Is God angry and what about sin? There was a verse we just sung. What we sing is really important, isn't it? What we sing in our services, and I'll come back to this a bit later, is really important. The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. In you I find my worth, in you I find my identity. But I'd like to come back to and just bear that that word of that song in mind, because that's what this is about. The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. In you I find my worth, in you I find my identity. So this is part of a series looking at progressive theology. And I suppose some of the distinctives of our church, and by that I mean what might be looked at at certain parts of our church and our beliefs that might be different from other churches. And that's not me saying we've got it right in everything. Someone one wrote, the one thing we know is that we've all got it wrong. Not everything wrong, but we've all got something wrong in our beliefs. The problem is none of us know precisely which bit we've got wrong. We're touching on a big subject today, and there's no way I can do it justice in 20 to 25 minutes. would encourage you to look at the previous podcasts. Uh, podcasts are available, I think, on Apple and Spotify under Oasis Church Hull. There's two there which are in the, the current series. First by Claire Thomas, who's our church leader, who's uh, on holiday this week. She gave an overview of progressive theology. And then two weeks ago, Rob gave a talk about original sin and whether that was a biblical concept. And the series have a flow to them. The next one after this one is why did Jesus die? And you'll see why that's relevant from what I come to talk about today. And then the final one is who goes to heaven? So there's some big, big topics. But as I said, we're not here to teach or tell you what to believe. That's not our way. I'm not qualified to do that. And it's not who we are. Rather, what I'd like to do is encourage us all to think about our faith, perhaps our preconceptions, maybe in a new light. Some call this deconstruction. Some are afraid that if you deconstruct, there's nothing left to rebuild. That's not my testimony. My faith, I have to say, is much stronger today than when I first started to have maybe the courage to question things. I also have a sense of, I think the technical word is congruity, the, the sort of the, the level between what I feel in my heart and what I've been taught to believe seem to be more in, in line with each other. That might be used against me as a criticism, I don't know. So we're going to talk about a number of subjects. What I'd really encourage people to do, we have Tuesday evenings here, half past seven for eight, when we're going to talk about these subjects in more detail. So please do come, share, listen, disagree, have a cup of coffee and cake. But please do come and talk further about these subjects on Tuesday this week uh, at half seven. I think it's half past seven start. Uh, no, half past seven for eight o'clock start is how it works. So this issue about the anger of God is a real biggie for me. 
I had a largely nominal faith until I came here to university 39 years ago this week. My, how time passes. I became a Christian in what you'd call the classic evangelical way. I was born again. I turned away from my old life and decided to follow Jesus. And I can point to the precise moment and give a good evangelical testimony about how that happened and when it happened and where I was when it happened. And I don't reject any of that experience. That was the most important day of my life. Night of my life, actually. I knew that then. I knew the moment I'd done it, it was. And I know it now. I decided to follow and trust in Jesus. And it was the best thing I have ever done. And it shaped my entire life since then. But my view of God has changed since then. As perhaps I've broken away, moved away from perhaps a traditional evangelical narrative. My understanding of my relationship with God has changed. Not in a blinding moment of revelation, but over time and over many years. When maybe I felt a bit out of sync with what I thought and what I was being taught. So I want to spend a bit of time explaining what that narrative is. What, what The narrative that I was brought up on. And if you weren't brought up on this, then perhaps you might just not need to listen and close your eyes. But I know a number of us were. So this is the narrative. God made Adam and Eve. Satan was in the Garden of Eden in the guise of a serpent. Side issue, if you read Genesis, Satan's nowhere there. It's one of those things we've all been taught to believe. Satan tempted Eve to sin, who tempted Adam to sin. It's all the woman's fault. There was the fall as a result. God throws Adam and Eve out of paradise, effectively as a punishment. And as a result of the fall, everyone, every one of us cannot help but sin. We have sin in our heart. In our, like if we were a piece of rock and you'd cross the rock, the word sin would be there because we have original sin being brought down to us from Adam. We have a propensity to sin. We can't help it. And as a result, we are separated from God. He's angry with me and cannot even look on me because of my sin. We're subject to the wrath of God as a result in the sense of a feeling, an action towards me and which can only be dealt with by Jesus, his son, coming to earth, living a perfectly sinless life and God pouring out his wrath, which was intended for me, on Jesus so that we might be right with God. Now, I don't know how many of you have walked through that narrative, but I suspect quite a few of you. And there's much there to unpack, and in particular why Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, became man, died, and rose again, all of which, just for the record, I absolutely endorse and believe. But today I just want to focus on that first point, this idea that God is angry with us, and as a result needs to pour out his wrath on me or on Jesus. So the first big question is, where does this come from? Where does this idea of an angry God come from? number of things. Firstly, I'd say from the whole concept of original sin, which we looked at two weeks ago, and 
saw that this arose not from the Bible, but from Augustine several centuries later. And in my view, that's not a proper interpretation of the Genesis story when read in the context of the whole of Scripture. Secondly, it comes from writers and teachers of the past. Now, the most influential book I have read over the last few years is a book by a guy called Brian Zand, and it's called, I've got it here, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And the title is taken from a very famous sermon written over 250 years ago by an American preacher called Jonathan Edwards, not the long jumper. His sermon was called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Edwards is still, not. don't just think that this is someone of 250 years ago who's meaningless today. Edwards is still revered in Christian circles today. This is his wiki, which I know is not gospel, but this is his wiki comment. Edwards' writings and beliefs continue to influence individuals and groups to this day. Missionaries are influenced by Edwards' writings. Edwards enjoyed a renaissance amongst scholars after the end of the Second World War. The Banner of Truth Trust and other publishers continue to reprint Edwards' words, and most of his major works are now available. Only last night, I read a Twitter comment quoting Jonathan Edwards and endorsing what Jonathan Edwards had to say. And this is what his most famous sermon says. I almost hesitate to read this in the presence of not young children, grown-up, youthful children, Thomas. This is what Jonathan Edwards had to say. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes and to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. There you go. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Thirdly, why does this idea of an angry God come about? I would suggest by a misinterpretation of certain scriptures, including those who talk of the wrath of God. An example, which again I saw quoted on Twitter last night, was Romans 1.18, which says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, I'll come back to that, but the interpretation, or certainly a valid interpretation of wrath there, is not an expression of anger. It's not that I am being wrathful towards you, but rather a symbol of the consequences of willfully turning away from God, being alienated from him. Not if you do this, God will be angry with you, but rather if you do this, this is the consequences which will go alongside. And I know that could be seen as a subtle distinction, but I think it's a really important one. And fourthly, I think the idea of an angry God, this might be a bit controversial, might all be controversial, 
I think the idea of those on the inside othering those on the outside is quite attractive if you're on the inside. I'm okay. I follow Jesus. I am saved. I am in God's good books. Those other people out there, maybe of other religions or no religion, or even of a different branch of our religion, the People's Front of Judea, not the Judean People's Front, they're in real trouble. God's really cross with them and will definitely punish them. It wouldn't be fair for God to love everyone, would it? Not when we play it by the book. And again, that may be just me, but, but that's how I, I see things and why this idea of an angry God pouring out his wrath on people is so common. And then this view is reiterated and reinforced in our preaching and our teaching and songs. If you've been coming to this church for some time, you'll have seen the songs we sing have changed. John's been right at the forefront of that. Too many of the songs we sung in the past focused on our sin, our separation from God, and his anger with us. The most well-known one is In Christ Alone. I remember the first time I ever sang In Christ Alone, I was on a, at a conference with Linda, and I thought this was the most brilliant song I'd ever heard in all my life. And I, If I can find it. You know, it is just wonderful. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving ceased. Here in the love of Christ I stand. It's fantastic. But there's two lines that give me a problem. And it says this. Till on that cross... As Jesus died, the wrath of God, his anger towards mankind, was satisfied. I grew to have a real problem with that. This idea that God was satisfying his anger and his wrath over us uh, by Jesus dying. And we'll come to atonement theories and come to why Jesus died later. So this idea of an angry God, God is angry with us. What does God think about us, to go back to the song? Well, he's angry, he's cross with us. Is it true? That's the fundamental question we're asking. And I'd like to put forward an argument that when Scripture is viewed through the lens of Jesus, this is not an accurate assessment of God's attitude towards us. What do I mean by the lens of Christ? The Bible, I believe, is a narrative of God's relationship with mankind. Written by mankind, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written by mankind as that relationship develops and becomes more known and understood. But Jesus came and gave us an opportunity to better understand what God says about us and to better understand the Scriptures. And frequently he would say, you have heard it said, but I say this. Not changing scripture, not debunking scripture or the Old Testament, but bringing a new perspective and a different view of it. 
And perhaps the most obvious example of this is Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. Isaiah is an Old Testament book. It's a messianic prophecy, looking forward to the time when God will come and deliver his people. So this, this is, and I'll read it to you. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So this is what God's deliverance for us is. Good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So the Israelites saw the idea of God coming and delivering his people, at least in part being about God wreaking out his vengeance on those who were against him. Do you see a bit of a tint there of the us and them? We'll be okay, but the rest of them will have their vengeance. So the idea of vengeance and wrath and retribution was in the middle of that idea of the person come, of, of God delivering his people. Luke 4 is when Jesus comes, and as many of you all know, Jesus is the embodiment of God. He's the Messiah. He's the person who is the, uh, the fulfillment of that prophecy. And he's just been tempted by the, in the desert... And it says this. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So this scripture was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he read it out. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's fine. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. That's good. Recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and Jesus stops. Now, I read somewhere, it said, it's a bit like singing the national anthem. And I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read the words. Be like singing a national anthem saying, send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, and stopping before the final sentence. If that happened, your immediate response to the person singing a national anthem was, hold on, you've missed a bit out at the end. What's your point? What, what have you missed? Jesus was making, by leaving that final sentence, about proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus was making a really important point. The kingdom of God is all about freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. But vengeance and wrath, the book on vengeance and wrath has been closed by Jesus, even if it was ever truly open. So that final missing sentence is really crucial. I want to read a bit from my favorite book. 
announcing, in announcing God's jubilee of liberation, amnesty, and pardon, was arriving with what he was doing. Jesus omitted any reference to God exacting vengeance on Israel's enemies. In proclaiming that Israel's prophecy had been fulfilled in their hearing, because that's what he then says, Jesus is claiming to be Jubilee in person. But the scandalous suggestion is that Jubilee is to be for everybody, even Israel's enemies. Jesus has edited out vengeance. And this gives us a key to how Jesus read the Old Testament. So my viewing of Scripture, coupled with my understanding of the creation and Eden stories, is that the concept of God as an angry person towards mankind and towards me, demanding the payment of a punishment and retribution and vengeance for all I have done wrong, is not accurate. I add to that the false premise of original sin, which sets the narrative off. The fact that this does not fit with anything that I know about Jesus and I believe the Testament, New Testament gives us. And as you'll see in a minute, because I think in the New Testament there is a much more accurate assessment of God and his relationship with mankind. But you might say, why does this matter anyway? It matters an awful lot because it changes our view of ourselves. God does not hate us. God is not eternally angry with us. He loves us. If lack of self-esteem is one of the ills of our generation, then a concept of ourselves as on the end of the wrath of God, on the base that nothing we can do is right because we've got original sin through our very being, is going to feed into that. And even as Christians, I wonder how many of us might give head knowledge to the idea of being a child of God, but still not believe we're of any real value, still trying to earn his love, never just bathing and receiving that love for what it was, still thinking that there's nothing good in us, of no value or worth, that we are intrinsically bad. And it doesn't help because we might be singing it twice a week on a Sunday morning. No. That is not God's view of us. So is there a better way? Is there a better view of God's relationship with us? I wonder what your favorite parable is. Like many of you, I would suspect that you will put the parable of the prodigal son near the top. It's led to famous paintings, it's led to books, sermon series, study courses, and I absolutely cannot do justice to it at the end of a talk. But I'd like to suggest that it's absolutely crucial in explaining the heart of God towards us, the Father heart of God. So I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to try and over-explain it or give a mini-sermon mini series on it. But please will you focus on the Father as a picture of God and his attitude towards us. And then at the end of it, I'm going to ask some questions. 
this for those who want to read it. It's Luke 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Someone once said, sorry, I'm now doing what I said I shouldn't do. Um, give me my share of the estate before your father dies means I want you dead. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And if you read on, you can read about the, the, um, the response of the elder brother and, and all of that. But I won't go into that today. So some questions. We accept the Father is a picture of God. Where is the wrath of God in this story? Now actually, if you take my first interpretation of the wrath of God, which is the consequence of living in a way other than what God would intend, the wrath of God is there uh, in verse 14, the consequences of walking away and, and uh, the, the younger son eating pig's will. What causes the father to run to him, throw his arms around him, and kiss him? He didn't know that his son had repented. There is an argument that his son actually hadn't repented, that this could have been just a ruse on the part of the son. I know what, I'll go back and say this, and I'll, I'll be given the, the food of, my, of the servants. The father didn't know that he'd turned from his ways. He just saw him. Where is the angry, retributive God who requires repentance, sacrifice, payback, payment for sins? It's not there. Rather, the Father, in effect, says, from a distance, you are welcome and loved as you are. Come and join the feast. Back to Zand. 
What I want you to know is that God's attitude, God's spirit towards you is one of unwavering fatherly, motherly love. You have nothing to fear from God. God is not mad at you. God has never been mad at you. God is never going to be mad at you. And what about the fear of God? The fear of God is the wisdom of not acting against love. We fear God in the same way that as a child I feared my father. I had the good fortune to have a wise and loving father and I had deep respect, reverence, admiration and perhaps a kind of fear for my father. But I never for one moment thought my dad hated me or would harm me. God does not hate you and God will never harm you. But your own sin, if you do not turn away from it, will bring you great harm as it did for the younger son. Sin is deadly, but God is love. And you see, that brings us to the question of sin. It's often put to progressive Christians, however you want to describe it. You're soft on sin. You ignore sin. Anything goes. Do what you like, it doesn't matter. You focus on mercy over truth. Any of you heard those comments put to you? No. See, in the parable, the father never condones sin. He is sad at what has come of his son, but not angry. God does not condone sin. On the contrary, Jesus has a better way for us. God has a better way for us, following him, learning from Jesus, loving God, ourselves, and our neighbors, by growing in the fruits of the Spirit, and warns us that if we don't live our lives in this way, then there will be consequences if we mess up. But consequences in how we live our lives, not consequences in how he regards us. Now, actually, we know that pretty much already, and I'm not sure we need to be reminded that often. But the picture of God as a loving father stroke mother is far more accurate, I suggest, than the Jonathan Edwards concept of wrath towards us like burning fire. So does God ever get angry? Perhaps that needs another talk. Jesus got angry on occasions. I'm absolutely sure that the way in which we live our lives and the way in which we treat God's creation and each other seriously grieves God. But if so, it's not a directive furious anger demanding retribution that means we are banished from his sight no the better picture of god is a father stroke mother who sees his wayward son and daughter return on the horizon who immediately puts to one side all they have done wrong or not without knowing whether they have repented or turned from their wicked ways who is filled with compassion, who runs out to meet them. And one of the stories on the prodigal son said that for a man, for the patriarch, to run was the height of indignity. He runs to meet them, throws his arm around them, and kisses them. Angry God? No, I don't think so. If you disagree or would like to talk about it further, please do come on Tuesday and talk, and we'll run through the various things. John, do you have a song for us?